Well, as we continue our series uh, called 316, I want to begin by asking you a, a question, or actually uh, just pointing something out that I think we're all kind of familiar with. It's a particular phrase. And I'm sure you've heard this phrase at some point in your life. Uh, you've probably heard the phrase, talk is cheap. You heard that before? <laughs> yeah, hopefully no one has said it to you, because the phrase has kind of an edge to it. It's, it insinuates that the person it's said towards has committed to do something or to be about something, commit to something, but never actually followed through with it. So it's not something you want someone to come to you and, and say themselves to your face, but I'm sure we've all heard this before. Or perhaps you have that friend who's always late, right? And they say, yeah, I'll be there at 6. But you know you have to adjust 6 o'clock for Sally time because Sally's never quite there at 6 o'clock. <laughs> or perhaps we have kids around the house who, who they say something but don't quite follow through with it. Like they say they're sorry they had a cookie for a snack before dinner. And yet as they say that, you're thinking to yourself, talk is cheap because your hand is still in the bag and you're chewing on more cookies as you say you're sorry. Or, uh, or ladies... Have you ever heard the words, I can fix that, right? Or, or I know where I'm going, <laughs> right? Sure, talk is cheap at times. Or just to be fair, guys, have you ever heard, I'll be ready in 10 minutes, right? <laughs> I'll see it in, in about 20 minutes. So we have all of these, these things that we say, and, and it's a really important question to consider because in some of these lighthearted situations, it's, it's not the, the biggest deal in the world but it can be important in other relationships. Because if we promise to do something, if we say we're about something, but don't follow through with it, it can damage our credibility and it can kind of damage our trust a little bit. So when we make claims to do something, care about something, be a part of something, our ability and our desire to actually follow through with that, to, to give the effort required to make it a reality, will either validate and build up our trust and relationship with other people and our credibility, or it's gonna slowly erode it away. If you think about it, this happens in all sorts of relationships in life. We see it happen in our friendships, in our families. We can see it happen in the workplace. We see it happen in government all the time, where there's something said that's going to happen, and you wonder if it's actually going to follow through. We see it in sports teams, and we also especially see it in religion. If you think about it, all major religions and all major religious writings are making claims or promising something that's inherent to them. And inclusive of all the major religions, you're going to find claims and statements along the lines of love and compassion and forgiveness and how these things should be lived out in the adherents' daily lives. And it's led people in the world today at times to say that, you know, there, there's, there's some form in all of these religions of the statement that where love is, there God is. And there's this popular uh, emphasis to minimize the distinctions between the major religions by saying, you know what, it just comes down to loving each other and doing good. But there's a problem with that. Because not only does that minimize the major distinctions that exist between these different faith traditions, it also fails to accurately define God's love. It fails to accurately define God's love. And when you open up the Christian Bible, you'll find something unique. You'll find something unique in the Christian Bible because only in the scriptures that we have in the Christian faith does it say the words, for God so loved the world that he took action. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he moved to do something about it. And that sets the Christian faith apart from every other major religion that you'll come across. 
You see, the God of the Bible didn't just say, I love you. He demonstrated it at great personal cost to himself. And as we look at this 316 passage today, we, we know John 316, for God so loved the world that he took action. He, he gave his one and only son. But as we look at 1 John 316, which you can turn to in your Bibles or in your phones or iPads. If you don't have a Bible, you can find one in the pew in front of you. And this passage is found on page 987. As you look at that, it reveals something to us. It reveals to us that if we're going to truly know what love is, but not stop there, but then actually be changed by it and be able to demonstrate it to others, we need to go back to the beginning and understand this true understanding and knowledge of love. So that when you read or tell somebody, hey, God loves you, they can't then look back at you and go, yeah, we'll talk is cheap. Because we can point to the scriptures and the reality of the truth that's in there and say, no, no, it's not just words, but it's love in action that we find in the Bible. Now, love is a difficult thing for us to define at times. It's hard to describe. If someone were to ask you, describe or define love to me, there's a bunch of different ways you could probably come at that, but somebody might say something like, it's an intense feeling of like deep affection. It's, it's this pleasurable feeling that's within you. It gets you all warm inside. I mean, you get the butterflies in your stomach at times. Other people may say something like, well, it's this powerful force that just motivates. It's this force within you that motivates towards something or to someone that you, that you love, that person or that item that you long to be in relationship with. But here's the problem with those. You see, if, if the person has never been in love before, it's hard for them to actually relate to those descriptions. Because often the way that we define and describe love is based upon our experiences with it. And if a person's been in love, they can relate to that and they can understand it. But if they've never been in love, if they've never experienced that kind of love, they, they just, it's words, but it's hard for them to actually enter into that and come into agreement with you. To, to kind of prove my point, the descriptions I just gave you are very similar to, to kind of how adults would describe or understand love because it's related to their personal experiences with it. But if you were to go and ask children, how do they describe love, you would get completely different answers because they have very limited and different experiences with love. I'll give you some examples. There's a, a young lady, age nine, by the name of May, who was asked, why do people fall in love? And her response was, well, no one's really sure why it happens, but I think it has something to do with how you smell. <laughs> That's why deodorant and perfume are so popular. Right? No, Bart at the age of seven was asked, what is falling in love like? And he thought about it for a second. He thought, well, falling in love is like an avalanche. You have to run for your life. <laughs> and then the wise sage, Ricky, at the age of eight, when he was asked, how do you let your wife know you love her? He says, well, you have to tell her that she looks pretty, which is a good answer. But then he finished it by saying, even if she looks like a dump truck. <laughs> you see, our experiences affect our understanding and definitions of love. And in the passage that we're looking at today, John understands this. He understands that if we are going to know and understand love, if we're going to be able to do that, we have to experience it. And so he opens this passage by saying, this is how we know what love is. This is how we experience it, is that Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And if we've experienced that, then we need to go forth, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters as well. See, this is love in action, where God declared his love for all, but then took this giant step forward to prove it as well. 
And in doing so, he holds up Jesus Christ as the evidence and as the highest definition of his love for us. And he goes as far, it's sort of, we can read into this verse a little bit, that he's going as far here as to say and suggest that we cannot truly know this type of love if we do not know Jesus. If we do not have that experience, we cannot know this type of love. He's saying this is the example. This is the act of love. This is the demonstration by which we know how to define it, explain it, and experience it. Where God looked down, And he saw a need that existed within us. And he was moved in his heart to the point where he took inventory of what could he do and he moved to solve the problem. And he did so through his son, Jesus Christ, who continued the expression of love by coming to take the form of a man, Philippians chapter two, and being found humbled as a servant He took the extreme, supreme example of love and gave his own life on behalf of our sins. And the result is that Jesus Christ extends an offer of eternal life to all people through love. Now, this idea of life that John talks about a lot is is actually the word zoe. I mean, I've heard that word before, but, but there's different ways to def- define love in scriptures. And the love, the life he's talking about here is the word zoe, which refers to this fullness of life. This fullness of life that we can experience now and eternally, which is where we get the idea of eternal life. Whenever you see the word eternal life in scripture, there's a good chance it's referring to this word zoe, which is life. And John talks about this a lot. And to those who have experienced this, to those who have experienced this zoe life, we ought, therefore, to exhibit the same qualities in our interactions with others. Now, I'm not suggesting that we have the ability to grant eternal life to people, but as followers of one who can, we are called to lay down our lives for the sake of others, not in a literal sense necessarily, where you're diving in front of bullets for people or you're racing out to to save the baby stroller before the car hits it at the danger to your own peril or or whatever sort of near-death movie type experience you want to think of. That's that's not the literal understanding of what we're looking at here, but, but the word that John uses here is another word for life. We have the Zoe life, but then he uses another word for life here as well, and the light, the word he uses is psyche, which is where we get the word psychology from. And when he's saying to lay down our life, to lay down our psyche, he's saying to lay down our hearts and our minds. You see, at the time that John is writing this, his audience believed that the heart and the mind was was the center, the seat of all feelings, the seat of all desires. It was the control center of all of our drives that moved and motivated us towards action. So speaking in that language with this word psyche, he's saying to lay down our hearts, to lay down our minds in the service of our brothers and sisters. So when John is saying that we are to lay that down, he's not talking about an obedience principle here. Because you see, a person can give regularly. A person can give broadly and lavishly and still not fulfill what John is talking about in this verse. Because you can be obedient and still be selfish. You can still obediently give because giving is the right thing to do, because it makes you feel good. Because if I do good, then I deserve good. See, we can obey in a selfish sense still, but that's not the example that Jesus set for us. 
Because Jesus gave out of the condition of his heart, out of laying down his heart, having compassion upon them, of loving them, was the motivating factor for which he gave. You see, so John is saying here with his example and the way that he's telling us to therefore live, he's not talking about an obedience principle of giving. He's talking about the heart, about how we should have a love for others, and that love for others that starts in Jesus Christ should motivate us towards this act of giving. You see, he's pressing to something deeper. He's going beneath the surface to the heart of the matter, which begs the question. It's the question he asks in verse, in verse 17, where he says, so if anyone has material possessions and he sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? John poses this as a question because it's meant to be sort of this test with one question on it. And the question is this. Does God's love abide in you? Does God's love abide in you? And he paints a scenario for a person to process and understand what it would look like if, if it doesn't. And he gives this description of a person who has enough material possessions to, to meet their own needs, but then extra in addition to that. But they see another person who's going without. And they choose within their heart to be hard-hearted, and, and failing to meet the needs of the other person by keeping those material things for themselves while another person suffers. And in such a situation, the question is valid. The question is valid at that point. How can the love of God be in that person if that's the way that they're acting? Now, we miss it in the English translation, but as I've already briefly mentioned, this word life gets translated different ways, particularly in John's writings. If you look at the Gospel of John, the three letters that John wrote, you'll see that he talks about life a lot. And in the English translation, we just see the word life over and over again. But if you could go back and look at the Greek, you actually see that there's three different types of life that he talks about. And, and to help us understand this verse a little more, I'll just point a couple of them out to you. You see, there's the first one here, which is referred to as life that comes from the word bios where we get biology from, bios. And this is referred to as life of the world. And a lot of translations will translate this word material possessions, which we see in verse 17 here. Uh, other translations will refer to it as, as um, the world's goods. But then we have the other life, which is psyche, which I referred to a moment ago, which is this inner life where, you, where your feelings are. We can see this referred to in this one as well when he says, has no pity upon them, is in reference back to this psyche kind of life. But then there's also the third one I mentioned a moment ago, life, which is translated Zoe, that eternal life, that, that fullness of life now and forevermore. And so we see the word life after life, life, life throughout the English translation. But, but these three words John intentionally uses throughout his writings to explain what he means when he says the word life. And to put this all together, the message of John all together with all three of these, we can understand it in this way, that if we possess the life of the world, that bios, but we shut down our inner feeling our psyche, we are not giving life, Zoe, to those who are in need around us. You see what he's saying there? If we possess the life of the world but shut down our inner life, we are not giving eternal life to the world around us. We can condense that down to this phrase. Our bios can impair our psyche, which interferes with our Zoe. That's our new mission statement, by the way. We're going to go with that. <laughs> Perhaps not. It's a little confusing. But, but do you see what we're getting at here? It is that our bios life can impair our psyche, and if our hearts get shut down, it has an impact upon the eternal, the Zoe life that we can offer to people through our experience with Jesus Christ. 
Now, this question, this test that he's offering is not meant to be an examination or a test about salvation. That, that's different. You see, if, if our salvation was based upon this, we'd be heading that direction of good works, where if we take care of other people, we'll somehow earn God's favor. And, and that would be slotted in the direction of these other world religions, where, 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 life is, where love is, their, their God is too. But it's not about a works-based earning God's favor, earning God's love system. The Bible is very clear on this. The Bible is very clear that the message in Jesus Christ is that it is by God's grace that we are saved through our faith, not by works so that no man can boast. It's not from or of us. It is from and of God. The question we want to ponder in this particular area is this, as we reflect upon this, are we abiding in Christ? If we've experienced that life-giving love that Christ demonstrated and gave to us, if we've experienced that and have been impacted by it, is that being lived out in us and through us? Are we abiding in Christ? Are, are we standing with Christ? Are we following in the footsteps in the example of Jesus Christ and how we live that out before the world? Because even as a Christian who is saved and heaven bound, we are still capable of sinning. We, are, we all know that. We're all capable of sinning. We, we do it on a regular basis, and, and it grieves us at times that we are still capable of doing that. We know that that is a truth. And because of that, it is possible for us to still have hearts that are stingy, that, that are cold and unloving to the world around us. But the reality is, is if that is something we struggle with, that is not a product that comes from our relationship with Jesus Christ. And so if we struggle with loving people, if we rather cling to the thing than to aid those in need around us. There's a sign that there's an area in your life that you're not abiding in Christ. If we're clinging to the thing, we may not be abiding with Christ in some other area of our life. So the point is this, is that just like God did for us, where he encountered a need, he was moved in his heart to give, and through that action of giving, he gave life through love. And if we are recipients of that gift, we are called, therefore, to pay it forward. We are called to pay it forward and to follow Christ's example, to bring life to others, not out of obligation, not out of religious service or obedience, but out of love in action, love in action the world around us. So if it's possible that we can have actions without the heart being in it, what about if the heart is in it, but there is no actions. That's sort of the same, another problem on the other side of the coin. And I suggest to you that this is actually more of a present challenge for our society right now than the other one we just discussed. That this is more of a topic that's happening in the world around us. It seems on a regular basis you can turn on the news on TV or on the radio or open up the newspapers, and you can see the latest tragedy happening in the world around us. You can see this week's school shooting taking place, this week's abuse against against people, this, this week's oppressed group. And, and when we see these stories and we hear about them, it, it hits our hearts and it bothers us and it should bother us. It should move us to, to respond. And quite often the response that we're moved to, and we see this throughout media, the response we're moved to is to reach out for words of encouragement and to offer some sort of post on social media that, that sounds similar to or exactly like sending thoughts and prayers are the words that go out to the victims of whatever that tragedy may be. 
Now, there's a response happening in, the, in culture right now that when, when these tweets or these Facebook responses go out that say sending thoughts and prayers, there's responses coming out you'll find in the comment section below that now says something along the lines of no more thoughts and prayers, we need action. Now, in this statement, the people who post these statements are clearly revealing that they don't see power in prayer, that they don't have a faith in the power of prayer. And I want to just be clear here, the point that I'm trying to get at is not prayer, because prayer is absolutely the most important thing that we can do in these situations. And we must pray, and we should offer words of encouragement. But what I'm suggesting is that we should not just stop at that point. We should offer prayers and encouragement, but not just stop at that point. Because as John instructed us in verse 18, he says, let us not love with words or speech, but with action in truth. Now, prayer is a form of action, but as we know that there's action that goes hand in hand with our prayers. When we look at the example of Jesus, when the crowds came to Jesus looking for food and healing, he didn't just say, I'll pray for you. No, we see in those stories he had compassion for them. It touched his heart when he encountered these people who were in great need. And I'm sure he did pray, and there are moments where we see that he did pray for them. But he also took action where he fed those who were hungry. He healed those who were sick. He touched the man who had leprosy. He stood toe-to-toe with demons to free people of those situations. He defended the sinful woman in front of the Pharisees who wanted to condemn her and kill her. And he, con- he challenged those who said he should not be doing these things. There was prayer. There was compassion, but it went a step beyond that as well. So in addition to saying prayers for these people, in addition to offering words of encouragement, there is this step beyond where we put love into action. Now you may be wondering, what does that look like? You may be thinking about the week that you've just gone through in different situations you've come across and how that could be acted out. And in order for us to understand what this can look like in our daily lives as we go forth into this world in a few moments, I think it's first important for us to understand that we need to follow the model that Jesus put for us, where he saw a need, he was moved in his heart, he took inventory of what he had, and then he gave life through love. Now, there's no lack of need in the world around us. Every day we walk and we drive by different situations where if we chose to and had the means to, we could step in and make a difference in someone's life. There's no lack of opportunity for these things if we have our eyes open to see them. And I believe that many people here have a great heart, that they do have a great love for people and want to serve and make a difference in their lives. I know also that there are other people and people at certain times where they struggle with loving others. And if that's where you find yourself, if you find yourself kind of trapped in this second step of of just loving other people and, and stepping out in love, I ask you to consider why. It may simply be that, that you're in a, in a time of life where you're in a need to be served as opposed to serving. And that's okay. Sometimes we hit seasons where the stresses mount up and, and burdens pile up, and we need somebody to enter into our lives to help us. And if that's the situation, that's okay for the time that you're in, and I hope and pray that people will come around you and encourage you during that time. But if your love for other people is a little more enduring, or your lack of love for others is a little more enduring, It could be a sign of something more serious happening, more of a a spiritual condition that's taking place. It may be simply resolved by stepping out, by by forcing yourself to take that step and to go serve a meal in the inner city, 
to make a donation, to, to give, to, to talk to that person that otherwise you would, would shy away from. It could simply be solved by stepping out and taking that step. Maybe you just haven't experienced it before. And by experiencing it, you could break that challenge. Or it could be more of a spiritual condition. And this could be mined a lot deeper, but it would find its root cause in the question, have you truly been impacted by the love of Christ? You may have received it, you may believe it, you may have received it, but has it deeply taken root in your own heart to the point where it motivates towards action? And if you can't quite answer that question, then that's where the solution can be found is to spend time examining and meditating upon the impact and the difference that Jesus Christ makes in your life. And when you see the difference he makes in your life, it can motivate you so that others can have that difference made in their lives as well. So we can see a need, we can be moved in our heart to act, and the next step is to take inventory. To take inventory and, and see what do we have? What has God placed in our hands? What have we been blessed with that we can then use and, and give back that we could be a blessing to others? And this kind of falls into three categories that we can look at, it, it, three T's. It can fall into the categories of treasures, time, and talents, of where these things can, can fall, which you can use in the service of love and action. We talk about treasures. This is the material possessions that we have, uh, the money, the things that exist in our lives that we can use for practically assisting and aiding other people. Uh, if you look at Matthew 25, this is where Jesus says that we need to feed the hungry and, and clothe the naked and, and give houses to the homeless and, and, and treat the sick. The, the Matthew 25 stuff where we can tangibly make a difference in a person's life who is struggling and going without. But another way we can do is when we look at, at the monetary resources that we have. And when we tithe and give back to the church, we're not just keeping the lights on and paying the lighting bill. We are funding missionaries around the world. We are funding ministries locally here at home. We are funding upgrades to the building and, and to the people who can go out into the community and the people who come in that they can be served and hosted well. And so we need you to, to look at that part of your lives as well and consider what is my tithe, what is my contribution to this material possessions that we can give to further the ministry of West Meadows Baptist Church locally and around the world. So there's these treasures that we have in our lives that we can use for the purpose of making a difference. But what about time? Well, time is one of the most precious commodities that we have in our days now because our lives are so busy. And just like how we decide how we're going to spend and how we're going to distribute our treasures, we need to make the same decision with our times. Because all of us are on the ground, on the same level with this one, because all of us have 24 hours within a day. We need to choose how we're going to use those. And so I want to encourage you to strive, to make time, to consider, how could I volunteer an hour or two here and there a week? Is there somebody in my neighborhood who just needs me to come and sit and have tea with them? Is there somebody in my neighborhood, a family, who could use a babysitter for the night so they could have a break and go out for the evening? Is there somebody who just needs to sit and talk for a while? Or I could just sit and be that ear or be that shoulder to cry on. There's people who are not able to, who are shut-ins, are not able to get out of their homes, and it can be a very lonely time of life. And so giving time, volunteering time, can bring life through love to other people. And it's a beautiful thing that when you stop your day, and give some time to another person. It's this beautiful thing because it shows value to them and it can make a deep impression upon them and, and really brighten their life and cheer them. But then we have our talents, the third category talents we'll go through quickly. These are the abilities, the God-given passions that exist within you. What skills do you have? Do you have a skill as an accountant, as a teacher, as a construction worker? 
No, the church and the world can use you. We can send people around the world to go do these things. I, I didn't understand how my talents would be used. A couple of years back, I went on a missions trip to Haiti, and I thought I was going to go there as a pastor. I'm going to teach, and I'm going to share the gospel and do those sorts of things. When I get there, what do I end up doing? I didn't think I, you know, I, was, I thought I'd go and use my pastoral skills. When I got there, I ended up fixing a barbecue and fixing a water pump, which are things I learned when I worked at Beachcomber Hot Tubs. Who would have thought I would go all the way to Haiti to use skills I learned at Beachcomber Hot Tubs as opposed to the skills I learned as a pastor? But it brought food and water to the people in that area. You just never know how these talents and skills that God has given you can be used in an incredible way. Do you have an ability, an ability in, in music or organization or encouragement or hospitality? Bless others with that when you see the opportunity. You know, everybody has something. Everybody has something. It doesn't have to be a large thing. It could be a simple, small thing. Finding that moment, being moved in your heart and taking that step to make a difference in a person's life, to bring life through love into their world. And I pray that we would have, we have the physical eyes, but also the eyes of our hearts will be opened to see the difference that we can make in the world around us. Because I think the world has heard the words. But sometimes I wonder if they've seen our actions. And it reminds me of a, a story I'll close with of a guy named Steve that I encountered a couple years back when one of my assistants walked into my office and said there's a guy here who wanted to see me. Now, I was busy. I was busy that day, and at the time, there was a long line of homeless people who had been coming through the office, and I had that human reaction of, another one? I haven't got time for this. But I thought, no, i got to make time. Because when I walk into his presence, I represent Jesus in his life. And so Steve came in, and Steve told me this story. The story about how he had moved from, from the Maritimes out to Edmonton because he heard there was work. And he had, some, he had some life challenges. He was running from some things back home, but he was coming out here to get work and to maybe start over his life so that he could go back one day. But when he got out here, he found that it wasn't quite that easy to find work. And he found himself with nowhere to stay. And so staying downtown for a while, hoping to, to find a job at a temp agency or something, he's living on the streets for a night or two, and he gets mugged and lose all of his possessions. And so he had spent a week at that point, homeless, without any food, without any care, without any warmth. And in the midst of that stressful situation, his addiction started to well up again, and he fell off the wagon and spent a week on a binge out behind the church. He had come off of that, and that's when he walked into my office. He walked in with a broken spirit, given up on life, and I saw a need. I saw that step one, a need, in front of me. And as I heard his story, it touched my heart. I was moved to, to compassion and thinking, how can I help this guy? And so I started taking inventory. What do we have? We got some food. We've got some clothes in the church. We've got a place where he can stay warm and he can take a shower, he can get cleaned up. And so we, we, we gave those things to him and the immediate needs that we tried to meet. But as Steve and I got talking, we spent, we spent a couple hours just, just sharing life stories and talking and learning about him. And I learned that what else he had, not only did he have some skills and abilities, he had a welder's ticket. He had it with him. It hadn't been stolen. He still had that. But what he needed was an opportunity and a pair of boots. So we bought him some boots and we drove around and called around until we found him a job. 
And a couple of days later, he got a job welding out in Nisku. There's only one problem. He still didn't have money for a place to live. He still didn't have food, and his paycheck was two weeks away. So I said, Steve, I will get up every morning, and I will come pick you up at 5.30 a.m. and drive you into Nisku. And I'll come get you, and I'll drive you back home. And so each morning I got up. I made him a lunch. I made him breakfast, picked him up, and drove him back and forth from work for two weeks. And we had this big celebration planned because he was about to get his paycheck. He had done it for nine days, like nine working days. He was one day from his paycheck. And we're going to have this big celebration because we had found him a hotel that was two blocks from his office where he could stay there. He had enough money to pay for it now, and he could just walk back and forth. He'd have his own place with electricity and water and all these wonderful things that we take for advantage every day. One day away from that, he calls me up, paranoid that some guys were after him, and he bolted. He took off. He went into his office and demanded his boss pay him cash, and he took off. Never saw him again until two years later. Two years later, my assistant walks into my office again. She goes, there's a guy named Steve here to see you. I didn't connect the dots. I walk out, and I didn't recognize the guy. He says, you don't know who I am, do you? I said, I don't recognize you. He says, well, I'm Steve. I'm the guy who kind of retold the story and came back, and I was amazed. And he says, I took off. When I got home, he says, you know, the time and the care and the love that you and the church showed to us. He says, they never left me. The times we sat and talked about life and, and you just listened. The times when you shared with me the difference that Jesus made in your life and how that can make a difference in my life never left me. He says, so when I quit running and I realized I couldn't run anymore, those were the things that were still there. He says, so I surrendered my life to the Lord. I reunited with my family. I've kicked my habits for two years again. I'm connected back into the church, and I'm serving other people to help them get their lives back on track as well. Now, I have a lot of stories of people we've helped, and not all of them have happy endings. But Steve is an example of one where love and action can bring life through love. Life not just in the immediate, but eternal life as well. And so, ladies and gentlemen, I can't promise you every person that you help will end with a happy ending like that. But you know what? The end of the story is not our responsibility. Our responsibility is to look at the treasures, the time, and the talents that the Lord has given us. To consider, in light of God's incredible love for us, of what he gave to us, the example Jesus set for us, how can we use those things to put love into action? So I'll leave you with this one thought as we close. We are never more like God than when we give. Because God gives. And God gave his son so we could know what love is. So we could experience love. We could have that life that comes through that love. And they go forth that others can have it too. So I invite you if you would stand with me as I close in a word of prayer and invite the worship team to come up. Heavenly Father, not only have you blessed us, but you've commissioned us. You've, you've placed situations and abilities, talents, and, and material possessions in our hands. And Lord, we, we know that we, we receive these for us, and for our families, but God, may we also see opportunities to go forth, to use these, to, 
to orientate them so that they can bring life through love into the lives of other people. God, I don't know what situations we're each going to stumble upon as we walk out of this place today and in the days ahead, but I pray that the eyes would be opened, that the eyes of our heart would be opened, that we would see the need around us, that it would touch our hearts because you gave first and set the example that we should walk in, that you loved the world, even though you knew part of the world would reject you, you still loved them and gave your life for them. God, may we do the same, to take those steps, to be moved in the heart, to take inventory, and then move to make a difference in a person's life. That at the end of the day, it would all point back to you, that you would receive the glory, that your kingdom would be known, and that lives would be transformed because of the goodness of Jesus Christ. So Lord, we stand acknowledging that that is the call that exists for us.